I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences, where we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org, and please follow us on Twitter at BioscienceAIBS. And today, for our very first episode, we're going to be joined by Dr. Quan Chen of Michigan State University. He'll be talking to us about coupled human and natural systems, otherwise known as CHANS. We'll discuss the concept more in the interview, but CHANS is an approach that explores the relationships between humans and the natural world and how those two systems affect each other. More specifically, Dr. Chen works with an interdisciplinary team studying the Mongolian Plateau, which is a sensitive ecosystem. It's also worth noting that Dr. Chen's article for bioscience is part of a special section on chance. That's in our June issue, already available online, and it includes an editorial from Dr. Chen that gives an overview of some of the other articles in the section. So without any further ado, let's get to the interview. And I'm joined now by Dr. Chen. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for considering uh, our study. And just to get us started, if you wouldn't mind, could you give the listeners a sort of a brief overview of what coupled human and natural systems are? Well, the idea is that uh, we are seeing increasingly connections between man and nature. So this coupled human and natural system is aiming at that connections. Basically, we're focus focusing on the interactions and the feedbacks between the elements of human systems and the natural systems. Uh, and w when roughly did this idea come into being? It, it seems to bear some similarity to, um, you know, to older ideas, things like human ecology. Um, but when did this particular approach um, kind of come into use? Well, it's a long history uh, because uh, bringing people or men into nature has been there for probably over 100 years. And back to 1921, uh, our pioneer, uh, the, some of the ec ecological pioneers, uh, they started uh, bringing people uh, into the nature. So, but um, really, in my personal view, and uh, scientists began to be getting more serious in early 1970s uh, when the Man Biosphere Program started under the IGBP program of United Nations. And perhaps in contrast to some of those earlier efforts, one thing I took away from your article and you know those of the other authors in the special section was a focus on metrics and, and kind of putting an empirical frame on this approach. Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly right. And uh, because there's a concept of uh, human nature interactions as I stated, has been there probably uh, since 1920s. However, this concept really received any quantitative approval. There are lots of good ideas, good concepts, uh, as I stated in editorial comments. Um, back to uh, Rachel Carson's time, uh, that's the, uh, the famous silent springtime back to 1960s. And uh, she started looking at how human influences may place on nature. And Jared Diamond's book and uh, a series of the books and it emphasized the human and the nature interactions. And... Um, here, uh, there's a special issue on bioscience, and we're getting towards a more quantitative description how the elements of human systems and the natural system may interact and feedback to each other. 
I think that's the uniqueness. So we're getting more empirical or experimental data into this quantitative modeling or description. So then, in a way, we're getting moved towards uh, moving uh, from concepts into reality and then started to test different hypotheses. That makes a lot of sense. And I, and I, and I want to get into the quantitative elements of the modeling. Uh, but first, your, your work is conducted on the Mongolian Plateau, isn't it? Yes, it is. And just for listeners who may not be as familiar, can you give us an idea of why that is a particularly interesting area for the study of change? Well, uh, first, let me uh, uh, introduce a little bit of Mongolia Plateau. If you look at the, the entire terrestrial ecosystem uh, on Earth's surface, there are a few places that are, are very geographically distinct, distinctive. Uh, for example, Tibet Plateau is one of those areas, and the Mongolia Plateau will be another area. The reason that these uh, unique plateaus are very distinct, distinctive from other regions uh, is because they are high altitude. And it's, it is also in high latitude. And the entire Mongolia Plateau is in the north side of uh, roughly about 42 degrees north. Because of its high latitude and a high altitude, then the region or the plateau is very sensitive to any changes. In a way, the ecologists call that a, the sensitivity or uh, they're very fragile to the physical change or any external disturbances. For example, if the same warming trend happens to, let's say, the temperate or southern China, and the re ecosystem responses on the Mongolia Plateau will be more pronounced simply because it's in high latitude and a high altitude. Um, so that's why we call Mongolia, Mongolia Plateau as one of the sensitive region on, on the, within the Earth systems. So that's a uh, introduction, introduction, a brief introduction of the Mongolia Plateau. So from the sound of that description, it sounds like the Mongolian Plateau can be thought of kind of in the same way one might think of the Arctic as a bellwether. Uh, so what makes this system uniquely valuable for studying chains? The, that's a great question because the reason we have been working on Mongolia Plateau since 2004 uh, was be uh, because my team saw a great opportunity, not only because Mongolia Plateau is very sensitive to any change, including climate change or other human activities or any external disturbances. Uh, the uh, second reason is because Mongolia Plateau is it consists of the two major governments. Well, as you stated, one is widely known as Inner Mongolia. That's a part of one, one of the provinces in China. And then the north side of the Mongolia Plateau is called currently Mongolia. So there are two major governments. This government, they used to be the same country, all belong to China until 1929 under the influence of uh, global communist movement, supported by the former Soviet Union. So the Mongolia, Mongolia government became to be an independent country. Uh, prior to that, it's really 
dominated by Mongolian, uh, which is nomadic type of practice. They have the same kinds of practice, cultural religion, and the government. So uh, because of this split, and after World War II, uh, the ecosystem, society, people, composition, e economy, livestock, everything started to diverge, started this diverging process. And what were some of the major differences, you know, politically, economically, that you saw between those two regions over those years? Right. The major difference is uh, there are many. For example, in the, let's say, look at the human population. And there has been a very, very high rate of population increase in Inner Mongolia compared to Mongolia, or, or some people call it, call it after Mongolia. And today, there are like 27 million people in Inner Mongolia, but there are still only about 2.7 million people. Obviously, um, you know, human factors, things like population and governance are critically important to Chan's, but what other sort of effects did you see? Right. The that's the major discovery of our study uh, on this special issue, uh, is that we, we try to link ecosystem productivity in a way that's how much a nature, which is a grassland, a desert, or forest, can provide to each of the country. By the way, two countries are similar in size, uh, with uh, Mongolia slightly larger than Inner Mongolia. So you can imagine the, uh, the landscape itself in Mongolia and the Inner Mongolia used to be very similar. Roughly, let's say, 30% uh, uh, as a desert, or most people will know as the Gobi Desert, for example. And around uh, roughly about 35 to 40% of the Mongolia Plateau are called grassland. And the remaining 10 to 15, 18% are forest. So with a similar we call it natural setting or landscapes or some people call them biomes. But you can imagine that ecosystem productivity, we call it net primary productivity. That is the amount of the carbon or biomass that can be fixed by the natural landscapes. So how did you measure that? Uh, we measure uh, using a couple of ways. And the first uh, data we used in this study is measured by satellites remote sensing technology. Uh, so with a similar ecosystem productivity in Inner Mongolia and uh, uh, after Mongolia, you would imagine that the livestock, those are the sheep, horses, cattle, all those livestock, it should be the similar, right? So you have the similar natural that nature, and then that should support the same number of uh, livestock but it, but that's not the case and uh, several years ago if you compare uh, let's say uh, to, uh, 2010 there were 110 million livestock in inner mongolia but yet in, after mongolia we have only about 40 million so that's a puzzle and why do you does do you have uh, the similar landscapes or similar natural nature that can provide services for the same number of livestock, but yet in reality, the difference is like two and a half time, times. That's a surprisingly large difference. 
Right. It's very, very dramatic. And we, that's where we looked at, uh, well, it must be something else. And that's where we think the human or society, socioeconomic development are, are contributing to that. This seems to speak to one of the benefits of the Chan's approach, because if you were looking at this from a really classical perspective and not you know, viewing the human elements with such granularity, um, you might you might miss a factor like this. You might not see the, you know, the, the trend that's occurring um, in quite the same way. You are absolutely right. For example, either livestock or uh, other human uh, wildlife plants population, you know, the classical way is look at the logistic growth of a population. And then what it happens is uh, with the limited amount of the resources, you can only support certain amount of population, including including livestock. But now we see from Inner Mongolia is that that capacity really exceeded what a logistic model may predict. And we attribute that, that elevated capacity is from human perspective. Uh, it's very ironic. Uh, by the way, I uh, did my bachelor degree in Inner Mongolia uh, back to very early 1980s. Uh, during my earlier college studies, I observed uh, management of livestock. I saw uh, herdsmen uh, are still riding horses, chasing livestock across the landscape from one place to another place, carry their Mongolia, uh, Mongolia yards or teepees around across the landscape, carry their food and the water. And uh, then now, uh, a couple of years ago, when I, when I traveled to Inner Mongolia again, I saw people, herdsmen, I mean, they carry uh, iPhone 5 in one hand, other hands, they're driving Honda vehicles. Uh, that's interesting. So it, generally speaking, in Inner Mongolia, you have um, somewhat more of a technological society. And is it, and is it a more heavily urbanized society there? Uh, that's not a separate issue about urbanization. I'm glad you mentioned that issue. It's a very, very different uh, in terms of urbanization, because uh, because of the, this rapid economic increase in Inner Mongolia, which is part of uh, China, you, you have seen that China has been increasing in its GDP at a minimal rate of like eight in the past what, 12 to 15 years. And in Inner Mongolia is no difference. It's the economy just has significantly increased steadily and the increase in the past of, uh, let's say, 15 years. So as a part of these economic increases and the value of livestock to the total GDP decreased because it's no longer that critical as you have more other heavy industry or mining industry. So then one of the way you can keep your livestock management is to have a larger livestock. Or, or broader region, right? Uh, so that's that we, as a result of that, and then you, that also means less number of employment for as a herdsman. And because you don't, you're the profit by uh, practicing livestock management is not as high as 
like you find any job in urban area. So that's one of the major points we argued in this paper is that uh, that is a lot of the migration of herdsmen. They're leaving the villages and the herd, uh, herding practice to the cities because income is too long. And I was hoping you could talk to us just a little bit about the implications of your research and research like it. Um, what does it allow governments, policymakers, and decision makers to do? Um, how can they act on it? Um, the implication is that we know you one cannot manage your natural resources, society, and the people without in, without looking at how the co or a couple of the dynamics of nature and society. So uh, it's very clear if you look at a human history in the past 7,000 years, started, let's say, Middle East area, like around Iran, Iraq, as uh, pointed out by Jared Diamond, that's where the human civilization started. And back then, and in the past, uh, let's say, five, 6,000 years, and the human development or society, civilization really depended on the nature. But since the World War II or since the Industrial Revolution time, we're, we're changing that trend. And we're more and getting more and more towards influencing, managing, or most of the time we're controlling nature, controlling the nature. I think one of the critical lessons for us is um, some way we know there's an economic development population increase may not be unstoppable. However, what we need to learn is during this uh, interaction, it's, nature is limited. There is a finite amount of resources. And if we do not understand this coupled nature and human or human and the environment, I think someday we may face a critical challenge or a threshold point. That may, in my opinion, someday that may cause the collapses of our, a, a government or a society or a region or a human civilization. I'm a, a little bit concerned there. And one of the interesting things about your work is that it gives us the opportunity to look at those sorts of things uh, in a quantitative way and so that we can look at tipping points, not just you know in terms of abstractions and, and qualitative guesses, but we can actually sort of look at them carefully and make predictions. That's the contribution of this paper. Indeed, in this paper, uh, we, for the first time, we brought this quantitative measure of uh, economic, social, and uh, environmental measures all together. For example, it's very ironic that, uh, well, for example, a general public, everybody understands what's a GDP, and everybody understands the population. And for a majority of people, also we uh, people understand what's ecosystem productivity. That's the amount of the car, uh, biomass that the nature, grassland, forest, or desert can produce per unit area per unit time. But ironically, uh, I don't know why we never brought those quantitative matrices together. For example, this is the first time we look at looked at how much GDP can be produced per unit ecosystem production. So the figure one, the diagram we presented in this paper, is really the first time try to uh, demonstrate that we 
to, or we can look at the interactions and the feedback be, be among the economic, social, and the natural ecosystem, and even uh, including other important uh, uh, practices like uh, livestock management. So we are, however, I have to say that this is the first time, and it's all, we're only in the earlier stage, begin very beginning of bringing uh, all these quantitative measures so that uh, we can test or look for um, uh, different options or prove the concepts of these couple systems. And that brings me to my last question, which is what's next? Uh, what are you studying now and what's the future of these approaches? Well, the future of this is that we're trying to narrow it down into specific policies. R right now in this, in this study, we have not lo looked at a specific, how specific a policy or change may contribute to the changes of the overall chance or the human natural system. For example, we know the former, former Soviet Union abandoned Mongolia in 1991. That's also known as the collapses of former Soviet Union. Right. So we are trying to understand how that sudden government, or you call that institutional change, may contribute to the dynamics of chance. Oh, that's a fascinating question. And why don't we leave it there, sort of as a glimpse into the future of chance research. Uh, we'll look forward to reading and hearing more. Thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Chen. Well, thank you very much, too, uh, for being interested in our research. So that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. To read the article we talked about today, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. Thank you for listening and talk to you next time.